everybody, welcome to another episode of Outside Looking In, the podcast series wherein I talk to 29 other people about 29 other teams while we also squish in Toronto Raptors subjects and topics into it so that we can get a consensus on what the league-wide people think of the Raptors and so you can know about every team in the league. And today, a very special episode, somebody who I've been, I guess, adjacent to for some time. I've done kind of a podcast together, kind of not with him before, but this is Bowser of Bowser to Bowser. Okay, he's a high school basketball coach. He created the Basketball Action Dictionary. He's a contributor for Peachtree Hoops. He's an X's and O's connoisseur on Twitter, but also online. Stay tuned for that. And uh, he's here to talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers. Bows, how you doing, man? Doing great. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm I'm doing good. Just kind of kicking back. I was watching a bit of the Blue Jays earlier. Uh, Blake is currently out. He's doing he's doing like live announcing for wrestling, which I know is a, a big deal for him. So that's cool. And uh, yeah, that's kind of what it's been up to. But I, the one thing I want to know right off the start is I know when I asked you to do this, you start going into Raptors tape, you start going into Cavs tape. So I know you watch this stuff. And we're going to start with the Raptor stuff. You go as long or short as you'd like. What are your thoughts on the team from Toronto? Uh, it's hilarious because also having these two teams paired together, it's like one team's like, can we only employ six, nine wings? And the other team's like, what if we had no wings? What if we just did bigs and little guards and tried to mismatch these two styles? And so Toronto, like I'm a huge Nick Nurse fan and because of injuries, I don't, I don't really know if last year was like the optimized version of the team, but I was, you guys, you call it Vision 6-9 or 6-9 Vision? What's the, what's the nickname you have? Project 6-9, Vision 6-9, whatever it is. It's something, right? So I am really glad that some team is trying it. The idea of like five interchangeable parts. I also have some more questions than answers, but, but like doubts, questions about is that like, is the best version of it going absolutely going five, six, nine guys, or is the best version of it going four and another guy? And is it, is it like a gimmicky thing or is it a real playoff success contender strategy? Cause it, it kind of reminds me of like in college football, triple option teams always steal victories during the regular season. Triple options varied, even the way they block, the blocking is very different. And so if you're used to playing a modern offense and then you have to go play the triple option, it's hard to have only one week to prepare against a completely different style. And like your scout team offense is, is uh, trying to, they don't even understand how like the blocking patterns work. So during the regular season, the triple offense will still wins, but triple offense teams rarely do well in the playoffs and in the, in the bowl series, because when a team has five, weeks to prepare, you know, all of a sudden you can find ways to stop it. So last year with all the injuries in the playoffs, it's hard to see if that's like, if that's a true test case for the Toronto. But my, one of my questions is kind of like, is this like the triple option where you're going to still win throughout the regular series, having all these six, nine guys everywhere? Or is this something that's like playoff savvy strategy? Cause I was like looking at some of the stats and, and Toronto, I was noticing because we all know the great transition team, but I was looking at their like half court offense uh, plus minus, and the half court offense plus minus was negative two point. Great defense, but worse offense. Negative two point five, so it was like nineteenth in the league. And the best teams in the half court offense when I was doing this today were like 
Phoenix, Boston, Utah, Philly, Golden State, Dallas. You know, a lot of teams that have playoff success. And and so if you have all these athletic guys who could run and transition, you're going to do well in the regular season. How well does that carry over to the postseason? And one of the things, like, for Toronto I was thinking about was can they f- find a center that can still embody the 6'9 vision but protect the rim more? Like, like, and maybe that's Precious Achua because I was like – I've always, every time I watched the Raptors, I was like, why is he not playing more? Why is he not mm-hmm. playing more? And I saw you praise it on a previous episode, and I'm like, all right, we're sympathetic. Because, like, every time I watched, I was like, why is Birch starting? Because it just seemed like maybe he deserves more minutes, but maybe he's not a full time starter. I don't know. The one thing, is there any rumors or um, interest in, like, Miles Turner for the Raptors? So, because, yeah, there's there's been stuff about Miles in the past, there's been stuff about Pirtle. There's been stuff about mm-hmm. quite a few different, even Sabonis had like a whisper here and there. There's been stuff yeah. about, and Sabonis was quite mobile in Indiana, although not with great success, of course. But yeah, the Raptors, it seems like they are, like Coloco even kind of fits into that out of Arizona. He's extremely limited offensively. As far as the college tape goes, some people believe in Rico Hines film. I typically don't analyze based on that, so I'll reserve judgment. Yeah. But he can he can step out on guys. There's there definitely it seems like if they have the opportunity to add a mobile big who presents a larger frame than Precious, uh, they probably would. But I also do like that you acknowledge Precious being a guy who might be able to bridge the gap between the old conservative form of defense that they can go to every once in a while drop defense or something like that Mm -hmm. and being switch heavy rotation heavy all the time yeah because one of the things i think mike prater's talking i remember him saying this on his episode and i was like mad because i already had this i was like i was gonna talk about that but like you guys talking about how is it really is it true versatility if you only have one scheme right like the idea of like the six nine switchable guy is like versatility right and like usually that's because you know you can do drop or switch or whatever, right? But if you only have one scheme, and if it's only like is that actually versatile, right? If it's if it's like if it's like oh we're versatile because we can switch, but that usually means you do other things and switch. But if it's like we have to switch everything, is that actually versatility? Because then or, or are you actually tied to one look? And it reminds me of like the idea of having a power forward who can shoot like the the Boyan Bogdanovich kind of Jay Crowder power forward thing. It seems like they're more versatile because you have more ball handlers, but then in the playoffs, it's like, Oh, they could really use, these teams could really use a second rim protector out there. Right. And it's like, all, and we don't have any options because all of our power forwards are Cam Johnson, Boyan, not Joe Ingles anymore, but like all, it was always that type of player. Right. And so I kind of think similarly with the Raptors is like, is like the idea of the six, vision six, nine is like versatility. But is it really versatile if it's only one? Like you have to be aggressive and use different schemes. Can you prevent? Like if you don't have good rim protection, can you make up for it with like some of Toronto's aggressive schemes and good on-ball defenders and things like that to, to limit rim attempts in the first place? Cle- our Toronto was like average, you know, like like I think thirteenth, whatever, at preventing rim attempts. So not great, but not bad. But had a very bad um, defensive rim percentage, bad protecting the rim, and so. If Toronto can like almost never let teams get to the rim, right, through their scheme, then the need for the rim protector isn't as big. But someone like Miles Turner, who like is mobile enough to defend in space, but also can, you know, 
also can be your drop big, be your rim protector. And maybe that's a chew of maybe it's not. I, I, I haven't seen, you know, I've seen what however many games in Toronto, but you've probably seen eight times as many games last year. Turner, he's in a contract year, but I was thinking like either Precious stepping up or Turner. I like that fit because the Birch minutes, it just like, I think Birch is a fine player, but it just didn't seem to fit, even though he was a starting lineup. And there were so many games I watched where it was like, that nominal starting position that a lot of teams do in the playoffs where the guy's like, I'm going to play the first five minutes of both halves and then barely ever play again, like what the Mavs did with Dwight Powell and stuff like that. So a center who can defend space, but also be your drop big and idea is we're not going to let them get to the rim at all. You know, if that actually works, if you, if they, Toronto was better at actually preventing rim attempts, I think there'd be less of a need. Oh, another one of my thoughts was I see a lot of people criticizing Nick Nurse. As like he's not creative offensively enough, and it's funny to me because like three years ago, everyone was praising Nick Nurse's offense. You go to YouTube, it's like Nick Nurse five out, you know, the Marcus Saul and Kawhi Leonard kind of five out offense and everything like that. And it's funny how he went. For, I mean, based on the limited amount of you know Twitter sphere that I see, but he went from being this like creative genius offensively to like people being like he's not creative enough. It's like, it's the same guy. He didn't have amnesia and forget everything he used to have. But I think the big difference is a lot of times when we talk about like creative or imaginative offenses, we're really talking about two things and that's pick and rolls and catch and shoot three pointers, right? Like everybody loves a good Spain league play or like a pick, pick and roll exit play. Like all the, all the plays that look really cool, they're usually some pick and roll and they're usually some catch and shoot three pointer. And that doesn't really fit Toronto's roster last year. Pick and roll ball handlers, rolling threads, like shooting. Um, like they would do some cool stuff with Gary Trent Jr. and stuff like that. But like in general, I think it's like somewhat a disservice because it's like Nick Nurse didn't forget everything he used to know that people used to say made it made him creative. Um, and and partly it's like as we we're saying beforehand, you have to fit you have to fit the scheme to the talent, right? And a lot of what he's done is like utilize a lot of dribble drive motion concepts and dribble drive motion. If you had to classify it in those like synergy plate types, it's like isolation, but it's more, it's not James Harden isoing on the wing with everyone else stagnant around it. Right. There's more movement. There's more cutting and things like that. But like the stats on how often Toronto runs isolation or like Pascal Siak, how often they do isolation. I think it's a little bit misleading because there's not really a category for like the types of isolation they do where it's like the, the dribble, the trailer pitch thing they'll do and kind of the weave different stuff they do. Um, and I think, I think Nick nurse evolving from the five out to Baca top of the key sort of thing to the dribble drive version is a sign of a creative coach. You know, being able to go from one scheme to a pretty different scheme a couple of years later. It's also it's just it's a lot easier to be praised for your creativity when you have you know some random triple stagger pin down for Buddy Heel to come you know get a three or some back screen to get someone a lob. But that that's the other flip side of the six nine theory is like if OG is screening for Siakam, if you can guard OG, you can probably hold your own on Siakam, right? Like like if you can guard this six nine guy. You could probably somewhat hold up on that six nine guy, um, and a lot of the pick and roll coverages are. I think I don't remember whose quote it was. It was like Jeff Van Gundy or somebody, but it was like 
pick and roll comp coverages are so complex because defenses are just trying to do anything but switch. It's just, they have to be all that complex so you can avoid switching. But if the screener and the ball handler are pretty much the same size, or even off ball, if it's off ball screen for two guys, you know, if it's barn screen for Siakam or vice versa, it's pretty easy for the defense to switch all that. And so then you have to get into uh, different scoring actions. Like if you if screens aren't as effective because of the similar size people, then you have to find different scoring actions, such as I guess dribble drive motion would be the first example to come to, to mind. But um, I always was curious if like the true vision, the true, the best optimized version of six, is it actually five, six, nine guys? Or is it one offensive engine, three, six, nine guys and a center who can protect the rim and defend his space or something like that? Because I'd be very curious if it's like, what exactly the end vision is. And I do think OG Ananobi, for my money, when he's on the court, it makes a huge difference because he is such a great shooter and defender. And when you have that uh, Siakam, Barnes, and OG, like one of those is, is technically playing a shooting guard. And so if you think about Cleveland, then you have, if you think about Cleveland, you have Donovan Mitchell guarding some guy who's, you know, nine inches taller than him. Um, there's a lot of matchup problems that kind of go away if that third guy is not OG, but he's, um, even if it's Boucher or, or whoever it would be, um, I, I, I've heard some people, some people want to talk about trading OG, right? Isn't well, that... let's, um, we, we'll table that and we can, okay. so you've, you've posed a few questions here. Yeah, so there's a few things. The first is what we talked about with Caitlin Cooper is that are the Raptors building this way because of market efficiencies and the guys like, you know, Justin Champagny, Delano Banton. These are guys they put on the back end of their roster. They believe they can develop them better than other teams, i.e. they get more valuable players out of less valuable draft spots. And then, you know, you can do consolidation trades or whatever. It's a good way to build the team, you know, in concert with their developmental staff. Or... Are we looking at, uh, you know, people who believe that the peak of basketball, as we currently understand it, is that you're not playing any short guys on the court? And Fred fits into it currently because he's really damn good. But, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe ideally they think, okay, you know what? This is what's going to happen. Eventually, that's not going to be there. We're going to try and put as much length on the court. And then we're going to try and couple skill with that as we go. They want to lay the foundation of length. Mm -hmm and then add skill? Or do they just think length can do it all? We put enough long guys. We we play a certain scheme defensively. We'll eventually find shortcuts within the scheme. It'll be like a top five defense year in, year out. Kind of like college stuff, right? Like it's the mm-hmm. scheme will get us through it. There's a, Those are the lines of thought. And then as far as the center, yeah, I think they're they're looking for, if there's a guy who's mobile and long, then I think they would take that too. Um, additionally, as you said at the start, between playing like not being versatile and being versatile is that are you versatile if you play one style? Even mm-hmm. if the, even the, if the switch all scheme looks like what we think versatility is, if right. that's what you do, it's not. And the Raptors were not versatile last year. They were versatile in the sense that they could go zone and man in the same possession defensively but they Mm -hmm. weren't versatile in that they played a bunch of drop and could counter teams by throwing kind of a knuckleball defensively with scheme they could do it by playing uh by ditching their guards and what they did was they won a lot of minutes with no guard lineups where they didn't allow anything at the rim 
they rebounded everything and they rebounded about 40% of their own misses on the other side of the floor. And then on top of that, we're, we have to wait and see if they'll let Precious Achua be kind of a lone drop big more often this season because he definitely wasn't very often last year, but I did like what I saw there. Um, as you're talking about with OG and Obi being important, I think this kind of takes us into the Cavs aspect of it and the Cavs versus Raptors thing. You were kind of kicking around the idea of the Cavs having trouble with the Raptors in a matchup, and I'm curious why you think that would be. So I was I was watching all of the Cleveland Toronto games as preparing for this, and in one of the games, because OG was out for one of them, but he was in a different game. There was the Fred, OG, Barnes, Siakam, and then the center it was Birch or Chuba or whoever it was, and. Uh, Cleveland was trying to hide Darius Garland on OG, or I think it was early in the season. And um, but whoever was guarded by Garland would just rim, every time there was a you know defensive rebound, he would rim run, and then he would get a paint touch and he get fouled or he would score. Right. So then basically Cleveland's like, all right, we can't put him on OG, we can't put him on Barnes, we can't, you know, so we had to put him back on Fred Van Vliet. But then it's like, all right, now what happens if you also have Donovan Mitchell in the mix? Because it's the same, you know, Garland and Mitchell are the same height. And, you know, Mitchell's probably, yeah, longer arms, a bit stronger, but he's still giving up nine inches or whatever to go into OG. So if one of them is on OG, then it's kind of the same issue. There's a flip side of this, though, because with wings, typically the hardest you know, wings can guard, you know, usually they guard two through four the best. And so it, sometimes they have struggle with small quick guards and sometimes they struggle with bigs. And so Cleveland's kind of done the opposite. And it's like, we're going to have two small quick guards and two bigs. And so I know like Scotty's great at the point of attack, but like maybe Siakam doesn't want to run around the screen that Garland, oh, all the staggers and off all things that he'll do sometimes. Right. And then Scotty, the clips I've seen, or he's been better. He seems to guard down better than up. Right. Would you agree with that? Like he guards point guards better than centers. Scotty. Yeah. So I I would actually I would disagree. So with oh, okay. with Pascal, Pascal's the guy you'll see if they're playing the Clippers, he'll be the one actually trailing Luke Kennard around like pin downs and all that kind of stuff. And oh. Scotty, yeah, because Pascal's very very um, liquid. Yeah. And Scotty is is he has really you know he's long legs, so it's hard mm-hmm. for him to like turn hips and really kind of keep foot speed with guards and that kind of stuff. I think Scotty does better guarding up than he does guarding down. Although he is very, very excitable to take the guard matchups. Although yeah. I think Raptors fans, most of them and all analysts would say that he struggled immensely with uh, most on-ball stuff this past season. Okay, because I was, I was, I have one clip. It's kind of one of the things funny things about defense is that like certain clips stand out in your mind. But there's a reason I go to the guy who watched 82 Toronto games this year <laughs> over my own opinion of watching like 15 or however many I saw. Because um, so if if Adi does struggle with with doing that, but then there's Mitchell and Garland for him to guard, and then on the flip side, you know Mobley or Allen, they're both pretty tall, and if they can get good post position, um, maybe they can get an easy bucket. So it's sort of an interesting matchup to uh, the uh, hypothetical Cleveland-Toronto series because there's obvious weaknesses going both ways, and maybe it's like a who who blinks first, you know? So I'm gonna. So you know how the Raptors pull off of the corners? 
as far yeah. as in their defense. So what what do you think about like Peel switching? How do you think that factors in? You know, when it comes to if Mitchell or Garland are headed downhill, the Raptors are bringing that guy up anyway. Just shoot the guy to the corner off ball and they're comfortable switching. I'm curious what you think of that. I am, as far as I know, the biggest proponent of appeal switching, probably after Will, after the guy who, who was, um, uh, was the coach behind it. I, I, on, I think pill switching is like the biggest defensive trend that's about to hit. And it's going to be like the biggest defensive trend since the Fibs is overload strong side zone. Um, I was like, watched, I was rewatching the playoffs and I was doing Seth Partners podcast and I was like, wait a second. All these teams that are overachieving are peel switching, and all these teams that aren't are not. And it was like, you know, this whole like the traditional trapping the box kind of thing is kind of designed for a three outs or four out offense. And then when you try to stretch it out to a five out, it's like the rotations are so much longer and longer rotations are easier to mess up. And then peel switching is like the antithesis of that. And I absolutely love the idea of the peel switching like i think almost every team should be looking into doing it so some people are like yeah but you have to have a good your team has to have really good communication skills to pull off peel switching and i'm like yeah but every defense has to have good communication skills like like that's just like if you don't have good communication skills you're not gonna have a good defense regardless of your scheme and so i definitely saw a lot of it from toronto last year but not not to the extent of some of the other teams um mm-hmm. Yeah, and I but I saw a lot more like nexting, a lot more of uh, things like that, which I didn't always love the nexting because it just seemed like sometimes it would work and then sometimes it would just give up an easy bucket. I remember a game against Detroit, and I have a few clips where it's like uh, this time it, uh, for some reason I, I often did OG do the most nexting for some reason I, I like no, maybe I just noticed him doing it the most. Um, um. He's he's positioned at the top a lot relative yeah. to the other wings, so you probably would have seen it quite a bit from him, yeah. Yeah, so I was I was like, maybe let's pump the brakes on the next thing and go more in the pale switching, but what are your thoughts on it? I, I think that's the, particularly against the Cavs, and we're going to get to see this opening night, which rocks, um, but Donovan Mitchell's going to get into the paint. So is Darius Garland. Yeah. Um, we've seen that you know, whether it's like Fred is one of the best guard defenders in the NBA. Maybe mm-hmm. he'll have the maybe he'll have whoever he's on. Presumably, I would guess, man, probably Garland. And then Mitchell will probably see, honestly, Gary Trent Jr. If if I had to guess, I want Precious starting instead of Gary as far as that goes. But I would expect Gary to start. Um, and so, yeah, I'd, I'd think that Gary is a guy, especially because he he can't contain at the point of attack. I don't find um, peel switching would be extremely beneficial for him. And the Raptors, they're already so well equipped to just kind of leap into rotation that I think that's something they should, if they're going to lean into this, if they're not going to have any drop, if they're not going to like yeah. you know, lock and trail up top and, and drop down low, then I think, yeah, peel switching would make a ton of sense for them to start doing more often. It does require guys to be engaged after they get beat in a different way. But mm-hmm. I don't think that should be too difficult to um, kind of hone in and practice. Or even, you know, they have training camp coming soon, right? Like, that's that's something they can they can yeah. do. And it's kind of funny because it's like, I remember some people would, would defend Rudy Gobert by saying, like, oh, there's so many poor defenders around him. And then, like, and I was always like, yeah, that makes sense. But then I was, like, watching Dallas, and I was like, Dallas has Brunson, Luka Doncic, 
um, uh, Bertans out here on the court. The same. It was. It was like. It was like. How come you? How come like other teams is like? Oh, you can't play two bad defenders. But Dallas is playing like four bad defenders at a time, and they're making the. They're almost making the NBA finals, and it's like, well, they're field switching. You know, Luca gets beat, and then they field switch, and it's like, Luca's not like these guys aren't known. It's, it's like one thing for like Draymond because Golden State pulled off field switching, you know, tremendously. But it's like, yeah, they have Draymond. They have maybe the best defender best defensive mind too of all time but it's like but even dallas is doing it we yeah we, got, we have berton is playing center and he's not being burned and luca is getting beat but then they just pill switch it and then then there's no um advantage created and so it's like it's one thing to say like oh the champions golden state draymond green can pull it off but if like dallas is pulling it off definitely toronto can i mean and also i think how much how if you have the vision six nine all the you 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 rarely give up a mismatch. I mean, one of the problems of field switching is that, you know, you have a switch and then you have a potentially a mismatch. Um, but if you have, you know, five interchangeable six, nine guys, it's just like, all right, now try to ISO me. Oh, you beat him. Someone else is going to switch on to you. Um, one of the things is you can beat field switching with really good cutting and Okoro and Mobley, Lamar Stevens, great cutters, but like Mitchell hasn't been a great cutter. Um, in a while and so hopefully he could oh or touch yeah mitchell mitchell's great all in the sense that he can attack closeouts quite well yes, yes and he can maintain advantage and like keep that ping 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 stuff going but as far as the you know like collapse a weak side zone with a 45 cut or something like that yeah that's not gonna yeah. be because if you're doing that pill switch to the strong side corner as you were saying you know let's say you have a guy on the right wing and he drives the guy in the right corner, you know, field switches on them. Well, if the guy he's guarding, you know, the, the defender who's beat can peel off and go get the contested three. But if that corner guy cuts to the basket mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it's, you, you need a, a weak side help rotation. So it's like, even though I love pill switches, I think it's huge uh, phenomenon. I don't want to act like it's just like the de- de- defensive brain is going to go down to 80 if everyone, no, because there are ways to attack, there are ways to attack every scheme. And so I would love to see Toronto lean into that more. Sometimes the, the, the more aggressive next team stuff, I kind of felt like it almost gave up too many rim attempts. And it's like, and if you don't have a Jaron Jackson or Miles to whoever, you know, to protect their, Mobley or Allen to protect the rim, sometimes the, the aggressive next team and things like that, it was like you're giving up backdoor cuts, you're giving up rim attempts. Whereas pill switching is kind of aggressive in a different way, if that makes sense. Um, it's sort you're, of. You're keeping the play in front of you a little yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's. The, the, that's the the goal of like if we're not gonna have a elite rib protector, let's 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 at least prevent people from getting in the rim in the first place. You know, yeah. Um, like you you catch up you catch up to different parts of the court, and I think that's like the the big appeal. But like Jared Allen, let's go on to that because we the Raptors don't necessarily have the personnel to stop Donovan and Darius from the point of attack, but they do have mm-hmm. the personnel to kind of climb through rotation to get back into things. Mm-hmm. Um, as we discussed, the Raptors have size in the middle of the court to give the Cavs fits. But as far as Allen and Mobley, what do you think happens with those two guys against the Raptors? I was actually surprised you said Gary Trent Jr. was going to start. So let me hear your starting lineup or what you think is going to happen. Because um, it was a bit sure. different from what I was expecting you to say. Sure. I want Precious starting, but I don't think that's going to happen, unfortunately. What I think is going to happen is that you'll have Fred at point guard, uh, Gary at the two, OG at the three, 
Pascal at the five and Scotty at the four. And okay. the, the OG Scotty and Pascal will rotate uh, assignments based on necessity in the front. Like they'll rotate those front courts, uh, right. defensive assignments, I think. So as you were saying earlier, Pascal's the, so who would you have? Let's say it's, well, I mean, Cleveland's starting lineup, four of it's pretty easy. If you have Mobley, Allen, uh, Garland, and Mitchell, it's, but whoever the small forward is, it kind of doesn't matter um, for, for lineup. But who would you have on Allen and Mobley in that situation? I think I, w- I would start with um, Pascal on Allen, mm-hmm. and I would start with OG on Mobley. What, yeah, like what, might, what might happen, though, is because Pascal is – like Pascal led the NBA in closeouts last year, and it's because the Raptors typically like to leave him in Rover because there's there was a lot of rotational mistakes. And mm-hmm. so Pascal is the guy who shoots the gap when something blows up for the Raptors. And yeah. so what they might do is Pascal might be on a Coro so that he can hang around. But I, I assume whichever of OG, Pascal, or Scotty draws the Coro assignment, that guy's going to be hanging out with the two bigs anyway. Yeah, Okoro is not a great matchup against. I love Isaac Okoro. I loved him since Auburn days, and um, and he, but he's not a great matchup against Toronto. And I would, if I was coaching, I would probably go more Levert and and Osman at those, or even Dean Wade, um, to basically to prevent that from happening, um, because Okoro kind of. Hopefully his shot keeps getting better. It was getting better toward the end of last season, but you know sometimes it's like, all right, it's better over a month, but you know is that going to last? Is that going to continue? Something like that. Um, and if his shot's not better, then yeah, it's not a good. Toronto's not a good matchup because there's too many, rang, range wait rangy or rang, oh, too rangy. many long rangy. Yeah, rangy. Too, for some reason I couldn't remember how to pronounce that word. Um, too many long armed mobile defenders who like if you're not a great shooter he can because uh, i think okoro had like one game against toronto i think he made like three threes because it was left open but like sometimes you make three threes and sometimes you make zero threes and that's a huge difference in the outcome of the game um and so if he's making the shots it's very different but if he's not making the shots then you just very much crowd the paint because it's already not a lot of spacing if you have allen and mobley together there's not very a lot of spacing to begin with um and like last year Okoro was way better at shooting guard than at small forward so when he's at shooting guard if he's next to Garland or Rubio that kind of fit him a lot better than him being small forward because then you have him at small forward Mobley at power forward Allen at center it's like not a lot of shooting to go around um and I think um I think that that matchup is very bad for Mobley and very good for Allen I think that Mobley would have a lot of trouble with either one of probably Scotty or OG, and especially OG. Like OG's really strong. Really? Yeah, OG. Would he have problem offensively or defensively? Offensively, I, I don't see any problems for Mobley defensively. Okay. That dude, yeah. yeah. Um, offensively, I think Mobley would have trouble with OG a lot, just because it's he he probably couldn't get to many many spots on the floor because the OG's strength that's strong, yeah, yeah, and because you know it's tough to maneuver. But Allen will probably eat anybody for breakfast that is sitting opposite of him. So that would be really interesting to watch out for as far as that goes. And I also was thinking if you have if you don't have Gary Trent Jr. and Fred Bentley both if only you know if only Fred's on there and instead you have whatever. Barnes playing the two and all, all Barnes, OG, uh, Siakam, and then, then whatever center, Birch or, or um, 
like that. I don't, is I don't or, think it'll be. I don't think it'll be Birch this year. I think he's. I think Birch is probably not seeing the court very often. That's what I was wondering about last year. Um, uh, yeah, but, me too, you know, man. <laughs> it was sort of like a. It was just like it, 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 we all see this. Doesn't Nick Nurse see it? It's like like hey, he is a very smart coach. Um, but uh, yeah, that matchup. But then, but then again, if Mobley is maybe the fourth option, you know, that offensively. And so if a matchup's not so good for him, it's sort of like his defense is still out there. And then you you run, you have Mitchell and Garland and Allen to be it. Cause OG is um, one of the better prototypes of, of, for how I would defend Mobley. And you were saying, you were saying Mobley doesn't have any problems defensively. I say that I think the one thing Mobley is worse at defensively right now is like big powerful wings who can get into his body. Like mm-hmm. I, I like I like Mo. It's kind of funny. Like Mobley, I think I'd rather have guarding a guard or a center than like a like a Siakam, right. like a big right. strong wing, because sometimes they can get into his body. Like he can lock up Damian Lillard and he can defend Joel Embiid better than he can do because he has those high hips and he's still pretty slight of frame. Um, so I don't know if that's going to be his entire career as he gains weight and gets stronger. But I actually don't like him guarding Siakam for extended minutes like, like he had some highlights but also he had some times where Siakam kind of just like yeah. basically hip thrust him out of the paint and then got got a lay in um but yeah it's an interesting matchup because if I was Toronto I would I would have Gary Trent coming off the bench and then I would actually have a because because who would if you have Siakam at center would you you'd have him on Allen OG on Mobley and then Barnes, would you have Barnes on the small forward or would you put Barnes on one of the guards? I put Barnes now. If if Barnes is asking Nurse, like, hey, let me let me guard Donovan, maybe because Nurse has kind of acquiesced to Barnes's asks before. But mm-hmm. I, I would I would put Barnes uh on, on the small forward is what I would e- even if it's a shooter, even if it's Osman instead of a Coro. Uh yes, because by the end of the season now this like this is us picking up different things you and I but by the end of the season I thought that um Scotty's off-ball defense has actually gotten quite good. Okay. So I think that regardless, you know, Osman there's some on-ball actions he does of course, but mm-hmm. I think that you're still mostly operating in an off-ball capacity which I yeah. think is Scotty's strength defensively. Um after a a summer, who knows? How mm-hmm. Nurse and Co want to use him, how he wants to be utilized, who knows? But that's what Samson Folk, the the coach, would do. Nice. So, outside of the Raptors, then the Cavs exist as just a team out in the Eastern Conference with four, perhaps you know, all stars locked up under twenty five. Mm-hmm. Is this a team? You said, as you said, they are built completely different than the Raptors. The Raptors are right the deity of wing, you know, right. Like they, they're at the altar of the wing and the calf said, no, not a single one of you. <laughs> and I'm curious, do you think that makeup, maybe as you kind of talked to at the start of the podcast, the, the triple read option. Oh, do they have, do they have a, a viable answer to regular season wins and playoff wins? Do you find in Cleveland? Uh, I think so, yes, because one of it is like when it, when the playoffs slow down. It, actually, what made Cleveland so fascinating to me last year was how good they were 
despite how limited the roster was. Like, mm-hmm. it was – like, there were games before they got Levert, you know, because Sexton was out, Rubio was out. There was times when Garland was out. And there was, like – this the starting point guards in some games are going to be trivia years from now, just like, like G league or guys. And it's like, um, uh, like even Mobley, I think Mobley had a negative plus minus on the season, except if you put his minutes with Garland or Rubio, it's like, if you give him an NBA caliber point guard, he was like plus eight, but he played so many minutes with no point guard. Like there was games when I think Chetty Osmond was playing point. I had, it was like the starting point guard and a Coro started at point guard. Levert started at point guard before we even get to like, Kevin Pongos and people like that. Um, so when they had when they had an actual NBA caliber rotation, the Cleveland was so good. And then it, but then there was a huge drop off because they had no depth. Because I think I think Cleveland was like the team hit most by Omicron or whatever, and it had all the health and safety protocols um, games missing, and they were still so good despite being that limited. And I was like thinking if one of the things they obviously need was another guy with some juice and Donovan Mitchell, it actually was kind of funny. I was writing an article that was like, the thesis of it was like why Cleveland was right not to go all in this off season. <laughs> and I was thinking about the Murray more specifically. And then I got like two paragraphs in the next day. It's the news of the trade gets dropped. And I, I, you know, Donovan Mitchell won me my NBA fantasy league when he was a rookie. So I have, affinity for him from way back um and he's just a very fun player to watch just aesthetically but i also have a lot of fears about having two six one guards um because it's it's like let's say you're you know you're playing against the raptors in a, in a playoff series and raptors go big and so the shooting guard is barnes or whoever right and you're like all right garland or Mitchell can't guard Barnes. We can't play both of them at the same time. What do you do when you have, we have to, are you going to platoon Garland and Mitchell? Like, hopefully not, um, because then it brings in some of Cleveland's lack of depth issues. So it, that's kind of a similar thing about the Rudy Gobert cat where people are like, oh, we're just platoon them. I was like, okay, but is that really your strategy to not play one of your highest paid players in crunch time? You know, like our strategy is the, give a guy $40 million and then have him on the bench during when he wins the most. Um, so I don't, I'm not against the trade at all. I think it's obviously going to boost Cleveland and, and the need for people around Garland was very evident last year. Cause like when Garland, when, when Cleveland had Garland or Rubio, they were, they were a great playoff team. I thought, I thought if they were fully healthy, Cleveland was going to give some team like a playoff series fits. Because with all their switching, they can do up front. And then you have Garland as the engine. And then it was just like, there's too many injuries, too much attrition. So then they lost the playing game. But I was thinking like this team had so much kind of like hidden potential where it's like their, their plus minus seems lower because they're losing these, these non-Garland minutes so badly. And especially in the games he didn't play. But it's like the real team, like the playoff rotation, if they're healthy, this team could, you know, cause a ruckus and so cleveland was supposed to have um cap room going in the next off season so i was wondering if their strategy was like you know kevin loves contract expires the first contract expires are they gonna do a splash but as we all know there's fewer fewer big big name free agents changing teams and so i was thinking cleveland should not have gone all in i had you know maybe next year not this year but maybe next year donovan mitchell's not on the trade market so you gotta you gotta work with what you got 
and this team is the east is stacked and fascinating and it's i had like a little tears thing and it's like the like the i think like basically three through seven i'm like i could see this these teams three through eight whatever it was i could see them being in completely different spots so what teams do you have there okay so i was doing this today and it was this is sort of these are sort of these thoughts and i haven't put a lot of and i'm not like a gambling guy and i'm not always so so i don't have a lot of trust but these are my first thoughts i have like milwaukee and boston sort of in one tier and then i had philly brooklyn with a question mark toronto cleveland miami in that next tier like it was like contenders playoffs and then atlanta chicago as like a step below them um and then charlotte new york washington as compete you know maybe they make the seventh seed maybe they're fighting for the playoff and then there's the indiana detroit orlando um sort of rebuilding teams um but it was because like it's like miami they were weird last year they, they led the eastern conference but also um but also they had like similar depth issues like some of their playoff rosters it was like this is amazing how well they're doing with these injuries and accommodations. But I, I, I could see like that second tier, the Philly, Brooklyn, Toronto, Cleveland, Miami. I could see any of those being third or even second or first, or I could see them, you know, seventh seed, eighth seed, because um, mathematically it's going to happen to somebody. So I don't know what's going to happen. But is that similar to what your tiers are? Yeah, I think uh, I. Miami, I didn't, I wasn't doing any introspection into what I thought of Miami. And I was kind of mentioning them in the contender status. But over the past couple of days, I was like, oh, yeah, that's not a, I don't think that's a contender. So Philly, I would have in not the question mark, though. Brooklyn, I would have in question mark, but Philly would join uh, Boston and Milwaukee, in my opinion. But as far as the uh, teams that we, yeah, I think we, they're, fundamentally the same tiers we just there's like very little quibbles uh yeah, my i think with philly was harden because i because because i i was like if harden's harden then 100 he's a contender but if like if he's getting older and older right. so so he he was the biggest reason that i dropped them down but i have them as the as the head of tier two so it, but basically it's because like I, i'm uncertain how much juice hard mm-hmm. is going to have and do you have a prediction on where toronto's going to end up End of the season? Uh, not really. I, I don't, I hate predictions just because like, yeah. well, I'm, I'm, it's the same as you, right? Probably it's that I, I, I do analysis. So like, I really appreciate people who can, once the game happens, they can break down what happens. Uh, the prediction stuff, I feel like a lot of, is just a lot of people saying stuff and right. like, you know, so I, I typically just try and stick to the analysis, but I think that they'll be a better team this year. I can't say for sure if they'll be better or equal to the fifth seed, which they were last year, because the East mm-hmm. is going to be, you know, really, really competitive. It's the the wild, wild East, as it were. But to, to focus this a little bit more, you're the X's and O's guys. For anybody listening, the Basketball Action Dictionary is a truly one of the best resources out there for basketball. You can go and you can find... All the different names, synonyms for what a play is called. You can find what it looks like. It's tireless work. It's it's an invaluable resource. And you're the guy who did that. You're the creator of it. And that puts you in a unique position as a guy who recognizes on the court when set plays, when set actions are being called. And so I wanted to ask you, since you've seen both these teams, 
do they have any overlap in play calls or at least, uh, I guess, driving forces of what they like to do offensively? I, I almost feel like they're – yes, there's, they, they, they both use some horn sets, but I, but I was like, I think they probably have the most dissimilar <laughs> scheme, offensive schemes. Um, and I was like – I was talking about like the dribble drive stuff of like, hey, we're going to have our power forward – running point guard and all these things and versus it's like all right we're gonna have a Darius Garland pick and roll with Jared Allen it goes from a high low lob to Mobley it just is like I'm almost completely different and I it'll be I'll be curious to see when you have like Mitchell added to it next year because are they going to do some of the more things that Toronto's done sort of the more democratic like ball handling things because one thing Garland is great off the ball but I remember, but like, but sometimes he would give up the ball and then he'd go run off a stagger. But then whoever he gave up the ball to would, I think, like, I think one time Scotty Barnes like stripped it from Chady Osmond. And so Garland didn't even get a chance to go off his off ball action because there was a turnover. And then uh, Barnes went in for a layup. And it was like, well, that's why Cleveland needs, I guess Osmond's a good guy, but he he's a good player. He's a rotation player, but he's not like your secondary ball handler. And so I wonder how they're going to use, um, Mitchell, will it be more like the Utah, you know, Toronto schemes where you have different chances to use the ball? But also you have Donovan Mitchell running a pick and roll on this side. And I could see a lot of second side actions with Darius Garland. But, you know, that's sort of the opposite of Toronto. Like like a lot of pick and rolls, a lot of a lot of post touches. Um, it's I, I, I was like wondering if you're going to ask me that question. And I was like, I can probably think of some ATOs that are similar, but in in terms of like what the scheme looks like, it just seems very different. Um, well, I feel like this is a this is a unique opportunity to investigate. You know, as you said earlier, with the the creativity question about Nick yeah. Nurse, and so I'm one of the people who has <laughs> questioned Nick Nurse. No, 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 no. It's not a diss. It, it, we're talking okay. we're talking basketball. Yeah. You know, there's there's room for disagreement. So mm-hmm. I was I've been one of the people who has questioned the offensive creativity. However, comma, I was never one of the people saying that his offense was creative in 2019 either. So yeah. I I attribute a lot of the fluidity of the early Raptors offense to Kyle Lowry. He's yeah. a really great offensive quarterback. I also think that the Raptors they are ill prepared oftentimes for second side action. They are under designed as far as when they have leverage on the court, mm-hmm. what they're doing on the weak side. And mm-hmm. I think that Nick Nurse, for the most part, needs to scheme in more stuff for what they're doing. Yeah, I I worry that the personnel makes that difficult because i remember I, I like i remember you talking in i don't even remember what it was we talked about blade action a while back and using that for siakam um and i love blade action but the thing is blade action works better with a rolling threat right like like blade action is siakam's defender has to cheat in and tag and then siakam can use that sort of distraction to, to get advantage on his defender but it's like if he doesn't have to tag because Toronto can, or just, uh, the defense can just switch or use drop. You can just guard two with two in the pick and roll. Then you don't bring in the tagger. And so if you don't bring in the tagger, it's hard to run blade action to, to target the tagger because he's not tagging. Right. Um, and so some of it's like the second side action is it's like, 
if you have you have a weak side exchange or whatever, um, sometimes if, if that's Barnes and OG, can't OG's defender just switch that and guard Barnes and then vice versa? So sometimes it's like partly the uh, at least, I'll, but I also could be missing things because sometimes it's like you think of psychic side action, you think of certain actions. Um, but what type of actions would you like to see uh, more implemented? So this is you watch you watch the Caitlin Cooper episode, right? Yeah. So basically, what we were talking about as far as initiating through the post and mm-hmm. allowing for more of the actions that she highlighted there, and then you, you can pull from what she what she was talking about that Indiana ran, but also what she was talking about is like what the Raptors used to run as well, like these little plays out of the post uh, that we don't see anymore. Mm-hmm. But also on top of that is like with with blade action, I think that that's also something that. Now, this could be OG Ananobi, this could be Nick Nurse, but OG Ananobi isn't being used as a roller in the Raptors offense, despite mm-hmm. being the best roller in the Raptors offense. I think OG draws a tag, for what it's worth. Like, well, well, my thing is, who's running the point guard? Because if it's, it's, if it's Fred, that's different. But if it's Barnes screening for OG, you know, is the defense just going to switch that? And I love the idea of more OG, you know, play finishing touches, stuff like that. But but that then that means you have Barnes and Siakam and Birch or you know whoever uh, that you know spacing the floor and I feel like OG because he's the best shooter out of those guys I just mentioned sometimes he's sort of forced because he's the guy you can do it he's the one kind of forces to space the floor because I I sort of worry if Barnes or Siakam's defender leaves him to go tag OG so is the yeah defense willing to give up the contested you know so with- shake pick and roll. With Precious, if he's on the floor, Precious was, in the second half of the season, he shot 40% on, um, I guess, five catch-and-shoot threes per 36, and it was four per his 26 minutes per game post-All-Star break. Um, Gary Trent's a shooter. Pascal Mm -hmm. was the best corner three-point shooter on the Raptors last year. Mm -hmm. He just wasn't positioned there very often. I think that there's room to kind of put these guys in different situations. And as far as... Does it matter if you switch onto Scotty or onto OG or if you switch Scotty and Pascal just because they're like sized? I think all of them have different, and especially Pascal and Scotty. Mm-hmm. I think teams don't switch onto them lightly because they have a lot more off the dribble pop than OG typically. Yeah. And especially like that's, you know, a lot of the the Princeton stuff that the Raptors run, like that chin. Yeah. Um, where they try and get a switch is they want Scotty or Pascal to get a switch so that they can work from there. And they're headed downhill because they're coming off a chin screen. But it's um, I think that there's more to fiddle around with. I, I obviously understand what you having like, well, why would you try this because of these limitations? But I think it's just you have to see at some point. Right. Yeah. Matter. That that was the, the reluctance to try and the reluctance to use Pascal as the guy who you know, 803 isolations to Lucas, 799. Pascal, and I know you have qualms about how those are cataloged. Yeah, but yeah, but it's, of, still, it's still pretty accurate. A yeah, lot of, gross. yeah, a lot of them are still like for the the 45 extended going at a guy. You know, mm-hmm. there's like pack line defense and all that kind of stuff. It's right. tough. So while I understand why you're like, from the coach's side, you're saying, hey, this stuff is not just like you implement a set and it works. I, I don't mean to suggest that. I just I would like to see a little bit more diversity, I guess. Yeah, and one of the hardest parts is like 
you don't know what nurses try to we've like our basketball team has installed lots of plays and a lot of schemes that just never actually saw the light of day right. so i hope i don't know if he is doing it or not because you don't have any evidence for it but um but yeah and then also because i don't know how bad you know toronto was hit was there, was there a lot of roster continuity last season or was it because that, that makes it even harder to implement new things if you have you know no one's ever has practices together there's quite quite a bit so this is the interesting patrick mccall was a player on the raptors who um a lot of people didn't understand why he got playing time and i my the reasoning i always thought was like we don't see practice and Mm -hmm. just because a guy can come in and play really well in a game from a coach's point of view he sees practice he sees how sets are on in practice and he might and patrick mccall might be the guy doing in practice and then yeah, you it takes like that coach's intuition to move away from what worked in practice and just give mm-hmm. something else a shot. This is where there was not a lot of continuity from the Tampa season to the the last season. Scotty Barnes came in, Precious Achua came in, Ken Birch was there for some of Tampa. Yeah. He was like a shell of himself with injuries and all that kind of stuff. Pascal was injured to start the year. Gary Trent Jr. had finally had like, a, I guess, you know, a training camp or whatever. But and then Thaddeus Young came along the rest of the part of the year. They they have, I think, their top three in continuity as far as minutes played from last year to this year. So I think that there's room definitely to implement stuff, to try stuff out uh, defensively and offensively with the Raptors this year. Yeah, I hope so too. Because it, it just even I even forgot about the Tampa part, but like having to move cities, um, and now you have another year with Barnes and and like, uh, do you do you have any long term concerns with Barnes on his sh- like I think Barnes' shot will keep developing, but if it doesn't, do you think how much of a ceiling does that place on his if he if he never becomes a better shooter than he already is? Yeah, it's it puts a ceiling on the roster probably, mm-hmm. and it puts a ceiling on his game obviously because he can get to where, like we see it with Pascal currently. Pascal's an All NBA player, but if Pascal hits his catch and shoot above the break threes more often, like mm-hmm. when in the fourth quarter, right, the ball comes to him, it's like side top, it's in his hands, and there's a three to be made. He, if he shoots like 27% on those again, that's really bad news for his game. That's bad news for the Raptors. And it also affects, we talked about earlier, how they can configure the offense. Mm-hmm. Scotty will run into all that kind of stuff. And he won't have the same type of creation stuff that Pascal has for a long time. And he's also not nearly as good as Pascal on defense. So Scotty being a- as confident in his own growth and his own ability to like input immediately, like he'll do it in practice and he'll do it in the next game. It's not like a yeah. player who's doing like, you know, three months of practice, then it comes out. Scotty will try it, then he'll figure it out. So I think we're going to get the feedback early and I, I'm positive in it the same way you are. But I, I do think that if it never came along, if he was just like a, a sub 33 point shooter for the rest of his career, that would really really mitigate what type of player he probably wants to become and what the franchise wants him to become because that i think in your pre-recording notes you mentioned something about the mobley versus scotty debate do you want to you want to go there now well yeah yeah i was i was curious about this yes because one of the things because one of the things actually to mention what you said about how he's a quick learner 
I was noticed because I was I watched the first thing I did was watch the whatever four um Cleveland Toronto games and it but so those games were six months apart right and I was just amazed at like some of the things that were going on in the end of the season from him that weren't at the beginning of the season and it was sort of like yeah this guy because it really stood out when you when you watch games you know three months apart um but I was was watching these games and and uh Cleveland was starting to dork Barnes and like basically dare him to shoot and and there was different things and I was kind of it's like if Mobley never gets better as a shooter it's one thing to have a seven footer who can't shoot right but then it's hard to have an essential part of your offense be a sub 30 shooter if he's you know if he's a perimeter player I know he's not like a guard but it's a more perimeter player because like to make Giannis work the Bucks had to get Brooke Lopez and it's a perfect fit, right? He can kind of be that three and D center. Um, but how many Brooke Lopez's are there actually in the NBA? And so then like, if you have a small forward, he can't shoot and Siakam whose shot is, you know, it's better than what some people think, but still, you know, not all, not a strength of his. So if you have those two guys and then you have a center who also isn't a great shooter himself, I was just thinking like, I think Barnes and Mobley would both get better as both get better as shooters. But I was like, sort of realizing one of the games I was maybe think about have some concerns that if the shot doesn't improve is that a, a not necessarily a limit of his skills he'll still be a very good player but as you're saying the roster construction it just becomes so much harder right if Giannis mm-hmm. can't shoot but needs the ball then you need a Brooke Lopez who can space the four or a Bobby Portis who can space the four right it really takes the, the limits of how many centers are on the NBA if you like only a certain number of them can actually play with your star um and the Barnes, and so the Barnes Mobley debate. And one thing is kind of it's kind of trivial because it's like, who cares that they were who drafted cares? the same? Yeah, yeah, right. Like, and also there's a lot of like a lot of fans. I feel like it's like they like those rankings of the redrafts, and they like they like get really mad at Bleacher Report or whatever. And I was like, guys, Bleacher Report, whoever's opinion doesn't really change the actuality. Um, and so I think there's a, but despite all that, I do think there's an interesting uh, comparison of these two guys because. Of, I think they're both incredibly athletically gifted, and they are have extremely high feel. Like those those two guys, that have combinations of athletic tools, high feel, defensive instincts. So they're, they're even though they're sort of a small forward and a center more or less, they still have a lot of similarities. That I think the comparison's a lot more fun than like Kate Cunningham. You know, it, it's like a yeah drafted the same year, but for some reason the Mobley Barnes comparison is a lot more interesting to me. So I'll say. And I wonder if the, this resonates with you. Mobley had a much better defensive year than Scotty, I would say. I, on top of that, Scotty had a a better, definitively a better offensive year. The type of offense that Scotty was providing at the NBA level is like a floor. Scotty was providing isolation offense against. Uh, weaker defenders in starting lineups Mm -hmm. and also did not get doubled that often. That is not the recipe for success for a star. And that's what I mean by floor. Like Scotty had a better offensive season than Mobley, but the offensive season Scotty provided does not guarantee stardom. Although it should be for a lot of people say, okay, he has something to build on here and he Mm -hmm. certainly could be headed for stardom. But if Scotty replicates everything he did in his rookie year, that does not drive an offense. That's yeah. that's that's the type of thing. And Mobley, while he definitely did not do as much as Scotty offensively, he has 
an easier fit into an offense. And that kind of leads yeah. into your, the shooting thing. Cause he's just right. so much bigger. Like, and also maybe, maybe this becomes a little bit different if, you know, Fred gets a little bit better at seeing guys on lobs on the pick and roll, especially if, if Scotty develops pretty good screen craft or anything like that, there's a million developments either player could make, but mm-hmm. as far as their rookie seasons, that was my takeaway. And so I, you know, I, I didn't really care who won rookie of the year. Right. I mean, right. It, it's, it it's was trivia at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. It, it was cool for those players, obviously like Scotty personally, it was a big yeah. deal for Evan. It would have been a big deal too, but yeah, I think that how they develop is definitely the way more interesting question for both yes. these guys. And we're going to get a front row seat probably to some possessions against each other. And we can see the seeds of some more developments as they work against each other, probably on October 19th. Yes. And so you were saying kind of a lot of what I was thinking about Barnes, where I'm like, is he really a star or is he going to be like the greatest role player of all time? I mean, it's not a role player. That's it seems like a disservice, but like, is he the you know offensive engine? Everything is he is he the guy you build an offense around, or is he like you know the the yeah, do it yeah. all? It's like, on you, steroids, can you like can you best. be a star without being an offensive engine? And like, there's different. That's like the superstar versus star, or whatever, right? It's mm-hmm. so it's interesting to think about. When I wrote that big piece on Scotty, where I went through all of his possessions, my biggest takeaway was like, at the very least, this guy can score in isolation against, mm-hmm. you know, we saw a lot of different players he scored in isolation against. And he has a very unique, as you said, you know, phenomenal athlete in unique ways and great feel. So he can get his own basket. That's already unique for his skill set. Mm-hmm. He is trending positively on offense. I don't know if it ends up in like all defense level, you know, we'll see. But he's also a just insanely good transition player. Yeah. Like that that is that is yeah. the interface. We've been we've been thinking in this conversation having the half court Scotty. Yeah. That is the like the open court is where being on the Raptors is kind of it maybe makes it look a little bit different because in the half court he has way more limitations, but in the full court his his reads of the floor as a passer and for himself, mm-hmm. you know, to find lanes as a finisher, he's really, really great and probably will end up being one of the best transition players over the next 10 years, I'd assume. That's, yeah, because there's a lot of thoughts that I had on it. And I remember you at one point last year, you were, you were making a case. I don't remember what it was on, but you're making a case for his rookie of the year. And I was a little bit like, oh, my. I was like, I was like, well, I trust Samson. And I-, I was saying, like, this is the argument you would make mm-hmm. if you wanted to argue that Scotty was rookie of the year. However, between like Cade, Mobley, and Scotty, I did not care. I I was fine with any of them. Yeah, yeah. I and, and I could totally understand if Cade has the has the biggest uh, probable growth, but I feel like Evan Mobley's potential of like his self creation, his like self created buckets last year as a rookie was like higher than Anthony Davis's highest season or something like that. And his handles is like good. It's like good for a seven footer, but still kind of sloppy. And the shot is like, again, like good for seven, th- but there's still kind of a hitch to it. And so it's like, if he can refine his ball hand and he can refine his shot, as I think will happen. And if he can add a few more pounds to his frame that I think will happen. I was like, this guy is, he could, I think Mobley, I think like Cade probably 
is probably is the best player in the long term out of this group. But I feel like Mobley could be this unreal person who could break the NBA if he if all of the all the seeds that you you see planted if they actually grow into what they could grow into because he can bang down low. He can he can run a pick and roll as a ball handler as a roller. Um, and he's you know if his shot keeps improving, like he's just going to be a batch of nightmare where it's like. You know, if you have OG, maybe you have a good guy to, to defend him. But like, there's only one OG. There's only a few people, and right. and uh, Mobley has these like matchup, that these matchup mismatch problems that like I feel like only Giannis can relate to. Uh, if Mobley keeps continuing in the way as I think he will be, because I'm very very high on his future. But he he did seem to hit the rookie wall last year, and and I was like, okay, Barnes, yeah, I'm fine if Barnes getting the rookie of the year, but. It'd be, I'm very curious to watch those two in particular, how they develop and how they compare to each other. This is um this is classic scouting because when we think about it, it's that Mobley running snug pick and roll at USC is mm-hmm. an insanely that's very very high on the list of like what do you know what do bigs do in college? Typically, not run snug pick and roll, and no. Mobley is. Is like what tools does he have available to develop that mm-hmm. seem like they could develop? And Scotty started. This is why Scotty won Rookie of the Year is because Scotty brought tools to the NBA that people did not really observe in college. And so yeah. all those, all those, and Mobley didn't start developing tools that people thought would start developing. That doesn't mean they aren't ready to develop still at the NBA level. So I think it's fair to say that Mobley has at a much larger size and he does have a better handle than most people's size. He will see what happens with the jump shot, but mm-hmm. Mobley has more outlier skills that he can probably develop than Scotty Barnes does. Whether he does or not, we've, yet, we've, we've yet to see, but Scotty currently has developed a few more skills offensively, Mobley a few more skills defensively, and so if you're wearing if you're weighing upsides, most mm-hmm. front offices are probably still taking Mobley. But if you're, you know, if you're taking what's currently here, maybe it's a bit more like up in the air for some people. But I think most people take Mobley and Mobley was selected before Scotty. Yeah. But um they're both extremely interesting. Like they they rock. Right. They're both really fun guys too. They're fun to root for. And it's funny because it's like I feel like a year ago there was all this assumption that Toronto was going to draft Jalen Suggs instead. And it just, it, it's it, even like as the years pass, how much is the right decision for to go with Barnes um, and Barnes just from like, cause I didn't watch a lot of him at Florida state. And it was, it was just early on. Like, Oh, this guy's fun. Like I, I tend to have, I tend to have a bias towards people who have athletic gifts and insane high field processing speed and Mobley and Barnes is immediately, I'm like, all right, those are, those are my type of guys. Like, like those type of guys, you can, you can just see them like mentally react so much faster, but also they're physically faster and longer and everything. So they can get to the rebounds and they can do the other stuff. That's so uh, amazing. And it's like, I would think any, like, even if it's like you compare, like any team's happy with either player, right? Um, it's not sort of, there's not a huge drop off either way. Uh, long term it's it's Barnes I think has got a fascinating fit I just have fits good fits a good word to bring up because my biggest concern is that like how well does he fit if his, if his jumper doesn't keep improving things like that 
because it's like when you think about it, every power forward, like you can think of Giannis, Julius Rand, everyone you can think of, John Collins, they would be best optimized with like a Miles Turner, Brooke Lopez, three and D center, right? But the idea of like roster building is like it's not about optimizing one player; it's about optimizing the team. And so if you have if you have a Zion, it's like all right, but then you need to have you need to make up for it elsewhere. So with Mobley, you know he can. I think soon we'll be able to be a full-time center if he wants to be. Um, and it's a lot easier to fit in a seven-footer with a shaky outside shot than it is a six-eight guy, as Philly has found out. But it doesn't mean – I think people over-index um, just a raw shooting ability sometimes. Like like Barnes' ability to be effective even without a reliable shot is a good sign because it's like – once he add the shot, he can be this effective with his defender sagging off. He can be this effective with his guy, you know, giving up a lot of gap. But when he gets that shot ready and he has all the, the counters already built in, I think he could be a very scary player for a long time. And it's a, it's, it, sometimes I see like Cleveland and Toronto fans like arguing, like, like in a negative way of where it's like, where it's like, you like, you like seeing the hometown pride, but sometimes it's like, you can be happy with what you have. And, and, I hope Cleveland fans are able to enjoy Scotty Barnes' play and vice versa, right? Like, even though it's fun to have these, like, uh, mental debates, at the end of the day, it's like, don't let your affinity for one guy keep you from appreciating any other player in the league. Yeah, well, it's – in this conversation, you and I, uh, we both – we like both players, obviously. Yeah. And uh, the, the point isn't to – I think uh, most people would – the type of arguments I like to make is probably that if if I'm going to argue a player is better than the other, uh, I'm going to argue it by saying how good the one player is, yeah. rather rather than trying to you know through lineup data or through some, something else delegitimize the other player. Mm-hmm. And um, I think with Twitter and the way that fan bases discuss things, delegitimizing players is one of the uh, favorite pastimes of Twitter fan base and stuff like that. So as far as the hopefulness of the Mobley and Scotty dialogue ending or being friendly, I don't think we're going to get there, man. I think, (laughs) I think, I think it was you and I here and, you know, some other people somewhere, but largely I think that the Mobley and Scotty thing is going to be as, as contentious as ever. I'm sure. Maybe one day our children or our children's children will be able to debate these two and do it in a friendly manner but for yeah. now we'll have to be the change we want to see in the world yeah exactly um as far as the Cavs and raptors is there anything you want to say parting shots before we get out of here um let's see because i have some of my notes let me get uh one of my things is siakam at center how much do you love siakam at center because you mentioned I hate it. starting center you hate it okay i hate because it because because I was even looking at it and it was like getting killed on the glass and, and like the plus, like, like cleaning the glass and stuff that they do like as position, mm-hmm. but, but they would put like Boucher or Thaddeus Young as the power forward. And to, in my opinion, they, they kind of are more of a center kind of than Siakam. And so I was looking at the minutes when there wasn't a center or Thaddeus Young or Boucher and it was like it was like negative two. It went all the way down of like it when Siakam. It has to be this like the only like like center out there. Um, and Thaddeus Young was great. You know when you have pressure to chew, it, it works so much better. But you mentioned him being the starting center on day one, and I was like, I was like, 
It's like, oh, that's. Yeah, I think be... that's going to happen, but I don't agree with it. Okay, that makes a lot of sense because yeah, I was like, it killed on the glass, and as you're saying, Siakam's such a great defender in space, and, and but if you but if he has to guard Embiid or Sabonis or whatever center, you know, that sort of takes a one of your best defensive weapons, and he still can do it, but you probably are leaving points on the table, not having him use his mobility also, and. You're asking a guy like Siakam who's, you know, maybe his usage won't be as high next year as it was for that, for the long stretch where Fred was injured, mm-hmm. but he's going to be creating a lot offensively. And if you're going to ask him to go to battle against the center and do that, it's, I man, I hope they start precious. I don't think they will, but man, I hope they do. Same here. I was every time I and like as you were saying, like the forty percent on his catch and shoot three. I felt like every time he was open, it was every game, the Atlanta game, the Cleveland game. I was just like, oh, another three. Yep. It makes also, it. it just felt automatic. You watched Precious play against Atlanta, so you saw the pump, the drop dribble, <laughs> the, and the, the hammer uh, over like, Okamu. He, I think it was. Yeah, he's capable. Yeah. Like Precious is really good putting the ball down. Yeah, he has. Uh, uh, I didn't watch any of his Memphis games, and the what I had heard about him coming in, it was sort of like say with Barnes, where it was like I don't know if the scouting report was wrong or if he added new skills, or whatever. But it was like this guy can handle the ball, this guy can shoot the ball, he can defend in space, and it was like it's it's a uh, a big get to, to take him away from Miami in that trade. Um, I think that's going to benefit the Raptors fans for a long time. I think he's a solid player and. Um, I, if I was making decisions, if I'm Nick Nurse, I would, you know, probably have him starting day one. But, you know, Nick Nurse is, Nick Nurse has spent more time with him than I have. So I trust his, eh, I trust his decision, but I would not be surprised if he ends up getting the starting job because it seems like the minutes he was in, Toronto always played better. Uh, Siakam got to move the power forward, but also, you know, he brought some spacing, he brought some, uh, added ball handling, which from the center position, you know, and then he's dunking on a Kongwu, which is not very easy to do. And uh, he, he, it was like, I was like, is he always making these three? I like, looked up the percentages at some point, and it's like, and it's like, wow, it just felt like every single time he was open, he was, he was making threes, which would be a huge internal development for Toronto to do that because he'd be a great pairing for like Siakam and Barnes. Um, the long term fit, I think, is very interesting. Yeah, that's that is one of the one of the big keys. I, I've talked about this, you know, elsewhere, but that's that's one of the things is like if Precious Situa hits above the break threes at a decent clip this year, then and especially if Pascal and Precious hit above the break threes, then Scotty and Pascal, all the questions about like, you know, the spacing on the floor, they get they get simplified right away. Right. And as you as you were as you were talking about, it's like, oh, you have to find the Brooke Lopez yeah. to the Giannis. If Precious Achua reliably hits threes and he's really good, he's been really good in drop, but it's been in low usage. You know, like the you well, you watched the Atlanta game, obviously, mm-hmm. where Precious was in drop and then Atlanta stopped using the pick and roll. They mm-hmm. just they started ice wing trade. And it wasn't yeah. it wasn't because of the point of attack defense. It wasn't Gary or Fred doing that. It was Precious was playing really great drop defense and we're at the level or hedge or whatever, right? And if they let Precious play more of that prototypical five and they find that it works, then Precious and Scotty is like, that's it. 
Like yeah. That's that's the future is because those two guys make each other tenable on both mm-hmm. sides of the floor. That's that's a very interesting long term development for the Raptors, definitely. Yeah, and he gives you like if he could do the because he's he's got like some wingspan, but not like crazy wingspan, right? He's got like a plus he's, three he's, wingspan. Yeah, I think he's it's a pretty good plus wingspan, I believe. Yeah, he's like he's also like six ten, right? He's he's or is he six nine or six nine? I think yeah. Yeah, the true the true vision. <laughs> The true vision. All right. I should have known. Um, cause he still has like some decent size to him. Uh, so the ability to stretch the floor, defend in space and be a drop anchor big. That's a great combination to get. Like, like what did Toronto give up again in that trade to get him? It was, it was Kyle. So it oh, was right, Kyle, right. Okay. Kyle. And then it was, uh, Goran Dragic and precious coming back. And then Goron and the first became Thad. Oh, okay. and well, okay. Thad in a second. So they moved back, I think, like twelve draft spots, and they got Thad for that move back. And Thad was really great. Yeah, because I was I remember watching Precious at Miami, and he kind of gave me more of like a like Harold Montrose Harold vibe of like an energy undersized big but it was like and then how he's at Toronto I was like wait a second he's a lot more yeah than that. yeah this isn't yeah it was like he, and then he's, he's a, a bit more than that so I was uh I was gonna while I was doing the prep I was like I'm gonna bring up how much I love the true and see if Sam's and then I saw your your previous video about how much you loved him and I was like okay good good all right we're, we're on the same page here yeah, he's he's the best. Um, I I might even to some degree be a little bit more interested in Achua's progression than Scotty Barnes, just because. Yeah, Achua is already. I think he might make all defense this year, dude. He's really he's impresses the hell out of me. If the if the Raptors are like around top five in defense, which there's no guarantee they will be, they finished ninth last year, and you know they had a month last year where they were like thirtieth. But if there's going to be a representative from that team and they're really good, I bet Precious will look like the guy, if, you know, in my opinion. Because one of my concerns was like, because he, he always brings so much energy and, and he's getting like, I mean, he was getting 20, 25 minutes a night, right? Is that about right? I think he got like 26. 26 yeah. a night. And so I'm always, if he, if he gets to that like starter 33 minutes a night, like if you can keep up the same energy, um, then that's a great thing. Because sometimes when the guys they go from the from the uh, six man role, or whatever, in the starting lineup, it's like it's like can you can you have the same impact for you know a lot? I mean, even though it, even though that what is that at seven minutes? Seven minutes doesn't seem that much longer, but it is. Uh, if you you played basketball, you you know how much different it is. Mm-hmm. Like the seven minutes might not seem like much, but it really does and so if he he does seem like a guy who has endless amount of energy and uh that's i'm still that's a bold prediction um for a guy who doesn't make predictions not predict not prediction but you said you wouldn't be surprised and i was like well damn well uh i'm impressed because he did seem very solid in that Atlanta game especially uh and to pair that with a guy who can take his man off the dribble and throw one down it's like yeah that's like that's a good player and yeah. a lot better than i realized he was going to be he's very unique um this was a unique podcast 
one of one of one of uh it'll be singular among the outside looking in the longest runtime, the most specific and uh with bowser to bowser uh the opportunity is yours to plug yourself whatever you want the people to know about uh to look into whatever um so if you find me on twitter bowser to bowser uh there's also i created on medium blog the basketball action dictionary you can come see my writing but go to twitter and that will lead you to everything else plus uh tim from basketball index and i are putting together the x's and o's university uh to learn more about playbooks and if you like specifics we're gonna get even more nerd nerd out on the x's and o's but that will be coming soon and so until then you can find me on twitter for all my latest ramblings and and memes about uh the Cavs and their need for healthy jared allen for their playoff success which i think i turned samson a fan i'm re- i'm referring to this as if they know what i'm talking about they have no idea what i'm talking about um but but you do but uh yeah you'll find me on twitter and that's twitter and basketball action dictionary i mean i'm the two but two best places to find my work so yeah for anybody who's listening or watching if you're familiar <laughs> with my written work anytime i link to some sort of you know whether it's a, a play on offense or some sort of defensive principle or schematic wrinkle uh it is always linked as either from slapping glass or the basketball action dictionary so you may recognize it from there but bowser it's exactly yeah, that's exactly how I started. I was writing, I was writing play breakdowns about last night's games, and I kept having to define the same terms over and over again. And I was like, wouldn't it be nice if I could just have like a link to go do it? And so I basically created that to be able to link to my own pieces. And the fact that other people are doing it is a great sight to see. So I'm glad to pay for all the things I've been taught about basketball and all the things I have to share. So I appreciate you linking and promoting the work. Nah. Always, dude. That's that is like the bare minimum a person could do. But uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on, Baus. Hey, thanks for having me. And listener, thanks for tuning in with us. We got into this uh, on YouTube. If you're on YouTube, make sure to like it. If you're just listening on the podcast channel, keep doing your thing. We'll see you the next one. Don't know when it'll be, but I hope you enjoyed this one too. And we'll see ya. <laughs>